Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. The Pennsylvania Highway we're traveling this week is a little more treacherous than most, but not for the reasons you're probably used to on this show. There aren't any ghostly hitchhikers, no ravenous beasts, malevolent spirits, or alien abduction points. The earth beneath our wheels holds enough danger of its own. Coming up the highway, it's not immediately apparent 
where the town limits are. The name has been removed from virtually all signage in the area, including on the nearby municipal building. Other than a small scattering of houses left along the roadside, you'd almost never know that, as recently as the 80s, the town was home to over a thousand people. But the second you roll down the window or step out of the car, a pungent scent hits your nostrils. A scent not unlike what you imagine fire and brimstone would smell like. The scent of hellfire. The kind of scent you can't help but associate with the end of days. And unless your senses are playing tricks on you, you can't shake the feeling there's something seriously wrong with the town of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Up until the early 1960s, Centralia was a successful mining town. With an abundant seam of coal running deep beneath the streets, there was plenty of work to keep the residents busy and well-fed. But that all changed in 1962, when a small fire started in a trash dump on the edge of town. No big deal, right? Fire was a pretty reasonable way to get rid of garbage, at least in those days. Although, if you're going to burn garbage in a town whose highly combustible livelihood runs close beneath the surface, you might want to make sure you're nowhere near an open coal seam before you strike that match. The fire spread from the garbage heap to the small open seam to a larger, richer seam underground. Once the coal lit, it quickly turned from a small problem into a cataclysmic event for the people of the small town. With blazing fires raging day and night, growing stronger and wider as it spread, the very earth beneath the town became deadly unpredictable. Yawning fissures and sinkholes would open up with little warning, spewing sparks, steam, and ash into the sky, and glowing with hellish flickering reds and oranges. While many of the people caught in these sinkholes managed to escape with little more than a broken ankle or twisted knee, one incident really hammered home for remaining residents that it may be time to give up the ghost and move on. On Valentine's Day of 1981, Florence Domboski sent her 12-year-old son, Todd, out on an important mission. There were strangers about town, official-looking men in suits, and she wanted to see if he could figure out who they were and what they wanted. As Todd headed out into the yard, and started down the street, he spotted a wisp of smoke rising from the ground beside a tree. Curious, he wandered over. The fires had been burning underground for nearly twenty years at this point, and he knew not to get too close. But with the outsiders poking around town, his curiosity was running high. Todd made his way over and peered down at the small tendrils whispering up through the grass. And then, with a sudden rushing sound, Todd was swallowed up to his knees in muddy, smoking soil. Panic immediately seized him, and his first instinct was to pull himself out 
as quickly as possible. But as he scrambled to climb free, the mud held him fast, and his struggling only caused the hole to widen and deepen. Soon he was slipping below the surface, deep into the steaming earth. His hands scrabbled at the dirt as he sank, at first finding nothing but rocks and loose soil that he pulled down on top of him, and then finally something hard and ropey, an exposed tree root. He grasped it with all of his strength and stopped his fall for the moment. But he could feel the hot, poisonous air of the burning mine rushing beneath his dangling feet and the immenseness of a hungry infernal chasm yawning from below. Heart-pounding, he did the only thing he could. He yelled, screamed for help to anyone that could hear. Anyone that might be passing by. Anyone with an earshot. Panic strained his vocal cords to their limit, and just as his voice began to falter, a head peered over the lip of the hole above him. A frightened, familiar face. His cousin, Eric. Lying down on his stomach, Eric managed to reach down and just barely grab hold of one of Todd's hands. Then, slowly and carefully, with Eric's help, Todd scrambled and clawed his way out of the pit. A plume of smoke, ash, and noxious gases wafting up behind him as he cleared the edge. The two quickly backed away from the hole and then collapsed to the grass, panting and wheezing. Todd was lucky, luckier than a lot of other creatures that had fallen prey to the ravenous inferno beneath Centralia. A brother and sister who grew up there recounted the tale of their neighbor's cat. They had been playing on the swing set in their backyard, not paying much mind to the cat who watched them from beside the fence. One moment, they noticed the grass beneath the cat had suddenly browned, and the next, the cat was gone, and no amount of digging managed to unearth it. Others have found the carcasses of larger animals, such as deer, half-submerged in the earth, their hindquarters charred and smoking. Likely the biggest sinkhole, though, is also the place to see the worst of the venting an entire collapsed section of Highway 61, conveniently located right near the cemetery. Despite everything the town had gone through since the first spark ignited in 1962, it took quite a while for the residents of Centralia to give up on the town entirely. In fact, there are a handful of people, five as of 2017 to be exact, that still live in the ghost town. But with no signage, no services, and not even a postal code, it's hard for those remaining few not to feel like ghosts themselves. The infamy of the town has made it a target for dark tourists and vandals, much to the frustration of the few people who still live there. But it's been immortalized not just in reputation. A town perpetually shrouded in smoke and drifting ash, situated above an eternally burning fire, 
If that sounds familiar, you've probably either played the games or watched the movies. And yes, the eerie town of Silent Hill is directly inspired by Centralia. Lucky for us, though, I don't think we're likely to find any twisted horrors roaming the empty streets. At least, probably not. Now, let's part the mists and find some horrors of our own, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Mike Allen. Mike Allen's horror story collection, Unseeming, was described as seriously unnerving fun by none other than Thomas Ligotti. By day, he writes the arts column for his city's newspaper. By night, he spins dark fables. An author, editor, and publisher, Mike Allen has been a finalist for the Nebula, Shirley Jackson, and World Fantasy Awards. His other books include dark fantasy novel The Blackfire Concerto and short story collection The Spider Tapestries. He lives in Roanoke with his artist wife and frequent co-editor Anita, his cat Pandora, and many varieties of spiders. Learn more about him as a writer at descentintolight.com and a publisher at mythicdelirium.com and as both at Mythic Delirium on Twitter. Children of the Night, join me for Mike Allen's Drift from the Windrose, first published in Tomorrow's Cthulhu, Stories at the Dawn of Posthumanity, 2016. Eden, I'm not a writer. Not like you are. You touch a keyboard and I swear 5,000 words drop out in 30 seconds. Not for me. I type fast, yes, but I will never have so much to say. Not all at once like that. Truth is, I'm not much of a talker either. You know that, right? This, what's happening right now with the words coming from me so easy, that's got to be the state I'm in. My nerves, the chemicals in the air, all those sounds in the other room. Maybe it's easier that I'm just talking to my laptop. I'm glad I can't see my reflection in the screen. I don't think I could record this if I could see my own face, even though it's for you. I need you to understand what all that pain means, what it's for. I hope my words are clear. It's hard to tell. I can barely hear my own voice. My boss can probably hear me out here. I don't think she cares. Oh, gods. I wish I had known how much you hated San Morta before we started sleeping together. But when I told you where I worked, you didn't say anything. Why? Wait. I remember. You told me why you didn't say anything. Because you wanted me that bad. Because you didn't want to scare me off. But you know, I don't think you could have. Your purple hair didn't scare me. Your tattoos, the gauges stretching your earlobes, your nipple rings, 
None of that scared me. Fuck. Even the thought of what my dad was going to say didn't scare me. The bastard had a hard enough time accepting me as a scientist. He wanted me married off to a doctor back home. Seven steps of wedding vows around a fire, jewelry through my nose, the whole traditional shebang. What he said to me when I confessed I loved a woman? I never told you, did I? You asked me, and I told you not to make me speak of it. You were so respectful of my wishes. Is that why you never talked to me about my job? You knew I'd tell you not to write what you planned to write. Never, ever to do it. And you didn't want to give me the chance to object. Is that it? You confuse me so much. But I love that about you. Even now, I hope that doesn't change. I hope you come out of this with some of that wilderness left inside. Brady here at work told me. He showed me your blog. The entry about what San Morta does to farmers. I know all about that, you know. I don't like it either. I don't even care that they can hear me say it right now. I know why people think it's unfair. Those farmers don't have much money and San Morta has billions. What harm could this company possibly suffer if someone saves a few seeds? But that's not the point you made, is it? In that blog entry. Brady told me he found what you wrote because that super popular activist site linked to it. Spread it everywhere. His eyes were so wide watching me as I read your blog entry on his screen because he thought he was looking at a dead woman. That you and I were both as good as dead. You're not the first to claim my employer deliberately tampers with crops and uses aggressive legal tactics to sweep it under the rug. But what you blogged about why they do it? You had to know they would come straight to me. That I would have to answer for your words? In all my soul, I can only find the will to forgive you because you couldn't possibly have imagined the consequences. If I'm to survive, if we are to survive. I can never, ever let them lose their faith in me. No, I came home to you that day with a heavy heart. Please know that. Please. Sorry, I lost my breath. I think I might have fainted. It smells like asphalt in here. No, so much worse. Like, there's a tar pit from prehistoric days in my boss's office and it exhaled all its ghosts into this waiting room. There's a sweet smell inside the tar, like honeysuckle, like you, and it gets stronger every time I hear your voice through that door. But if I try to inhale you, the tar will kill me. 100% tar, just like the old cigarette ads never said. And I'll barf my lungs out, and then they'll grow legs and crawl away. I'm sorry, Eden. I don't even remember what I just said. I'm fighting to keep these words sane. But I remember when I got home and confronted you with that printout, and you just said, yeah, I tried to get you fired. Like it was nothing. It would have taken me a thousand hours of screwing up my courage to admit something like that. But you just blurted it out. 
My dad beat me for blurting things out. Your dad did too, didn't he? You told me that, and that wasn't even the worst he did. So how did we grow up to be so different? Concentrate, Amisha. Keep your focus. Eden, this is so hard. To fight the drugs we're breathing. To finally speak my secret aloud. It's like... I see you in front of me now. Me saying, What were you thinking? I almost lost my job. And your blue eyes went steely. And you said, That would be a good thing. I think they've brainwashed you, Amisha. And as I sat there in shock, you snuggled against me on the love seat like you wanted a kiss. And you started talking about the lateral gene transmission like I didn't know. I was too stunned by what you had done to say anything else. I just let you go on. And much of what you said, I've heard before. That with genetically modified food, the body doesn't recognize when it's ingested something unnatural that the body gets fooled into replicating unwanted genes. I couldn't help but laugh when your eyes went all wide and serious and you told me, they've proven that the mutant cells start clustering in our reproductive organs first, so children are born with that modified DNA already a part of them. I know, I shouldn't have laughed. It wasn't for the reasons you thought. I was laughing because you couldn't possibly have known how close you'd come to describing what's really going on without actually understanding one fucking bit of it. And then you yelled at me about how San Morta gets away with it because they have plants, human plants, inside every level and branch of government. And I know I shouldn't have kept laughing, but then you grabbed me and shook me. How could you do that? You know all about what my dad did to me when I was eight. I trusted you with that. Did you do it deliberately? To hurt me the way my dad would hurt me? So I'd heal like a good little dog? You're the first person I've known who I ever felt I could be intimate with. And I even told you that you make me feel safe. Sorry, Eden. Doesn't matter now but I keep forgetting what's important because of the atmosphere in here. It's so thick with the mother's musk. It's like my brain isn't even attached to my body anymore. Is this thing still recording? It is, bless the stars. I had to show you that you had it all wrong. It's a miracle I was even allowed to come home to you. And I admit it broke my heart in a completely irrational way that you agreed so readily to a tour of our lab. I knew then and there that you had to be plotting something that you tried to hide from me. But at the same time, you made me so happy because I knew then you had a chance. We had a chance. Oh, oh no. What? Wait, mother, I'm not, I'm not finished. Don't, Eden, I love you. She let me go. Looks like my laptop is still working. She didn't touch it. I don't think she cares about our lives. I mean, our day-to-day -day lives. And that's why I have hope. I hope what she took from me will help you. I hope they'll make the things the mother is going to do to you proceed easier. This stench, it's so thick. 
It makes my head light. I don't know if I'm talking to you or dreaming it all. Funny that I remember this now. I did worry that you'd be disappointed at how mundane this place is. You know, our labs. They don't look much different than what you'd find in the biology department at Farish University. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Especially now. I just remembered your shout of F-U every time I said that name. Fact is, our labs look junkier. Ha! And you know, the place of all evil, as you call it, is just a big greenhouse on the roof, where we keep all the varieties of plants we're studying to see what gene combinations show promise. It's really important what we do. The heirloom seeds you yammer on about, the world is undergoing drastic changes. I have inklings of what's going to happen, and I still struggle to imagine it. The weather turning haywire won't account for even a fraction of how this planet will transform, what humans will endure. But we'll still need to grow food. We have to adapt our crops. I don't hear those sounds anymore. Maybe it's over. Or maybe my senses have stopped working. But my laptop is here. I can touch its warm screen. The little line that the recording program displays keeps pulsing as I speak. Did I say something about how the mother doesn't care? None of them care. About our daily lives? My co-workers might care. But they're not the ones that matter. These... Creatures only care about the big picture and where we fit in it. But Eden, you were all about the big picture too. Of course you planned to put everything you found in your blog. I knew you had a camera hidden in that purse. You never carry a purse. Did someone from the activist website give that to you? Fact is, I could read your thoughts like a picture book. If I lost my job because of your expose, if you wrecked my career, I'd be free of this place. And you could deprogram me lovingly. And I'd see that you did it all for love and love you even more. What I kept thinking about, though, when I led you to my boss's office, was how you grabbed me by the neck and shook me. Like my father did because I wouldn't do what he wanted. So many years I would sit on his lap and he would sing to me so beautifully in Hindi and I would wish I knew the words. I had no warning what was waiting inside him. Or you. But I do forgive you. Some part of me, though, must hate the thought of happiness for us. Because there was a perverse thought. Because there was a perverse part of my mind that desperately wanted you to catch on. The way all my co-workers treated you better than any real science journalist would ever be treated. All smiles and happy to show you everything. Even though you're nothing more than an angry woman with your own little angry blog. The way they just smiled and kept chatting about how we use traditional cross-pollinating when you couldn't hide your boredom anymore. The way my boss greeted you like an old friend after the things you wrote. 
She looked her dapper best, I tell you that. I can't believe how pretty she can be sometimes. I can't believe how pretty she can be sometimes. It's all about her mood, I think, how she wants you to feel. I could tell you were responding to that aspect of her power too, Eden. But how could you help yourself? No one can, really. Sometimes, I think my boss is just another human, taken deeper into the mother's mystery than all the rest of us. Sometimes, I think she's a piece of the mother, an independent aspect. What I think is irrelevant. No one can resist her charms. When she selects someone to interview here, you can bet they'll show up on time. But it's how they respond to her boss that's important. Whether they understand and comply, like I did, or try to fight back, or start shrieking. My boss's boss, the mother, she was waiting for you in the room beyond the office. They told me I wasn't allowed to say anything about her, that I had to let her introduce herself. My boss was weaving her spell of words. You didn't notice when the mother started attaching her limbs to you. I did. I couldn't say anything. Eden, I'm so sorry. I was hoping you wouldn't scream. I grew up reading comic books about the many-armed Hindu gods. Sometimes, when the mother takes me, I close my eyes and imagine it's Parvati embracing me, preparing me for the times ahead. The mother lets me think this, I think. Even, sometimes, makes it real for me. She wants me to be willing. I don't know what she does for the others. We don't dare talk about that. I wouldn't even speak it aloud now if anyone else was here. I guess you could say, the same thing you tried to do to me, set up an ambush to force me off the team, I had to do to you. Otherwise, our lives were forfeit. When I went to the mother to answer for what you'd done, and she took me in her arms, I showed her how useful you could be, filled my mind with visions of all the things you could do for her when she taught you the right way to think, how your voice on our side would make our cause easier. Thank the gods I saw that she agreed, that you would be spared. She showed me what she had in mind for you. I didn't see any other choice. The mother isn't like you, or like dad. She's been honest with all of us here about the harm that lies inside of her. The mother isn't like you, or like Dad. She's been honest with all of us here about the harm that lies inside her. Eden, you are absolutely right about some things. You wrote that the reason San Morta denies that its GMOs cause genetic drift in humans isn't blind stupidity or bureaucratic incompetence. You said. They're doing it deliberately, and that they want it to spread. This is true. You almost even grasped the reason why. You wrote that it was for population control, that the group you're in touch with believes the intruder genes will make everyone more docile, more vulnerable to disease, more dependent on government. They'll cause changes, all right. I can't think about it because it makes me feel so sick I want to vomit myself inside out. 
The mother is just one of multitudes. She and the ancient things she calls kindred are are kind in their own way. When they make themselves known, they don't want bloodshed. They want to claim this world peacefully. The things they can do with their minds, the ways their forms can change, we can't hurt them. Their bodies, most of what they are doesn't even exist in this dimension. There is nothing we can do to stop them. Those of us who are useful, those of us who understand and show that we are with them, we have a chance at lives, at futures. A slim chance, but a chance. Those who resist, who don't understand, who are not useful, they will just be crops. There are some, like your father, like my father, who deserve that and worse. But I want you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want you to be with me when this future comes. It's the only hope I have that it will be bearable. The smells are fading. Those sounds you were making, they've stopped. The mother promised me you would still be you when she was done that you would still look like you, even, to some degree, still think like you. Oh, I hope she's kept her promise. If there's something left in you that questions what I've done, I'll play this because I won't be able to say these things to your face. But I hope I don't need it. I hope I can just delete it and never worry about us again. I love you. That was Mike Allen's Drift from the Windrose, as read by Jen Lloyd. Thank you, Jen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our second story comes from Mary E. Wilkins Freeman. Freeman was born in Randolph, Massachusetts, in 1852. She began writing stories while still a teenager, but her career as a short story writer took off when she won first place in a short story contest with her submission, The Ghost Family. When the supernatural caught her interest, the result was a group of short stories which combined domestic realism with supernaturalism, and these have proved very influential. She produced more than two dozen volumes of published short stories and novels. Her stories deal mostly with New England life and are considered among the best of their kind. After living in both Vermont and Massachusetts, Mary settled with her husband in New Jersey where she became a local celebrity for her writing, despite occasionally publishing satirical fictional representations of her neighbors. Her husband suffered from alcoholism and an addiction to sleeping powders, and had a reputation for driving fast horses and womanizing. He was committed to the New Jersey State Hospital for the Insane in Trenton, and the two legally separated a year later. After his death, he left the majority of his wealth to his chauffeur and only one dollar to his former wife. In April 1926, Freeman became the first recipient of the William Dean Howells Medal for Distinction in Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Freeman died in 1930 at the age of 77. Listen with me, children of the night to Mary E. Wilkins Freeman's The Vacant Lot. When it became generally known in Townsend Center that the Townsends were going to move to the city, there was great excitement and dismay. For the Townsends to move was about equivalent to the town's moving. The Townsend ancestors had founded the village a hundred years ago. The first Townsend had kept a wayside hostelry for man and beast, known as the Sign of the Leopard. The signboard, on which the leopard was painted a bright blue, was still extant, and prominently so, being nailed over the present Townsend's front door. This Townsend, by name David, kept the village store. There had been no tavern since the railroad was built through Townsend Center in his father's day. Therefore, the family, being ousted by the march of progress from their chosen employment, 
took up with a general country store as being the next thing to a country tavern, the principal difference consisting in the fact that all the guests were transients, never requiring bedchambers, securing their rest on the tops of sugar and flour barrels and codfish boxes, and their refreshment from stray nibblings at the stock and trade, to the profitless deplenishment of raisins and loaf sugar and crackers and cheese. The flitting of the Townsends from the home of their ancestors was due to a sudden access of wealth from the death of a relative and the desire of Mrs. Townsend to secure better advantages for her son George, 16 years old, in the way of education, and for her daughter Adriana, 10 years older, better matrimonial opportunities. However, this last inducement for leaving Townsend Center was not openly stated, only ingeniously surmised by the neighbors. Sarah Townsend don't think there's anybody in Townsend Center fit for her Adriana to marry, and so she's going to take her to Boston to see if she can't pick up somebody there, they said. Then they wondered what Abel Lyons would do. He had been a humble suitor for Adriana for years, but her mother had not approved, and Adriana, who was dutiful, had repulsed him delicately and rather sadly. He was the only lover whom she had ever had, and she felt sorry and grateful. She was a plain, awkward girl, and had a patient recognition of the fact. But her mother was ambitious, more so than her father, who was rather pugnaciously satisfied with what he had, and not easily disposed to change. However, he yielded to his wife, and consented to sell out his business, and purchase a house in Boston, and move there. David Townsend was curiously unlike the line of ancestors from whom he had come. He had either retrograded or advanced, as one might look at it. His moral character was certainly better, but he had not the fiery spirit and eager grasp at advantage which had distinguished them. Indeed, the old Townsends, though prominent and respected as man of property and influence, had reputations not above suspicions. There was more than one dark whisper regarding them handed down from mother to son in the village, and especially was this true of the first Townsend, he who built the tavern bearing the sign of the Blue Leopard. His portrait, a hideous effort of contemporary art, hung in the garret of David Townsend's home. There was many a tale of wild roistering, if no worse, in that old roadhouse, and high stakes, and quarreling in cups, and blows, and money gotten in evil fashion, and the matter hushed up with a high hand for inquirers by the imperious Townsends, who terrorized everybody. David Townsend terrorized nobody. He had gotten his little competence from his store by honest methods, the exchanging of sterling goods and true weights for country produce and country shillings. He was sober and reliable, with intense self-respect and a decided talent for the management of money. It was principally for this reason that he took great delight in his sudden wealth by legacy. He had thereby greater opportunities for the exercise of his native shrewdness in a bargain. This he evinced in his purchase of a house in Boston. One day in spring, the old Townsend house was shut up. The blue leopard was taken carefully down from his lair over the front door. The family chattels were loaded on the train, and the Townsends departed. It was a sad and eventful day for Townsend Center. A man from Bar had rented the store. David had decided at the last not to sell. And the old familiars congregated in melancholy fashion and talked over the situation. An enormous pride over their departed townsmen became evident. 
They paraded him, flaunting him like a banner in the eyes of the new man. David is awful smart, they said. There won't nobody get the better of him in the city if he's lived in Townsend Center all his life. He's got his eyes open. Nobody paid for his house in Boston? Well, sir, that house cost $25,000, and David, he bought it for five. Yes, sir, he did. Must have been some out about it, remarked the new man, scowling over his counter. He was beginning to feel his disparaging situation. Not an ounce, sir. David made sure on it. Catch him getting bit. Everything was an apple pie order, hot and cold water and all, and in one of the best locations of the city, real high up street. David, he said the rent in that street was never under a thousand. Yes, sir, David, he got a bargain. $5,000 for a $25,000 house. Some out about it, growled the new man over the counter. However, as his fellow townsmen and allies stated, there seemed to be no doubt about the desirableness of the city house which David Townsend had purchased and the fact that he had secured it for an absurdly low price. The whole family were at first suspicious. It was ascertained that the house had cost a round sum only a few years ago. It was in perfect repair. Nothing whatever was amiss with plumbing, furnace, anything. There was not even a soap factory within smelling distance, as Mrs. Townsend had vaguely surmised. She was sure that she had heard of houses being undesirable for such reasons, but there was no soap factory. They all sniffed and peeked. When the first rainfall came, they looked at the ceiling, confidently expecting to see dark spots where the leaks had commenced, but there were none. They were forced to confess that their suspicions were allayed, that the house was perfect, even overshadowed with the mystery of a lower price than it was worth. That, however, was an additional perfection in the opinion of the Townsends, who had their share of New England thrift. They had lived just one month in their new house, and were happy, although at times somewhat lonely from missing the society of Townsend Center, when the trouble began. The Townsends, although they lived in a fine house in a genteel, almost fashionable part of the city, were true to their antecedents and kept, as they had been accustomed, only one maid. She was the daughter of a farmer on the outskirts of their native village, was middle-aged, and had lived with them for the last ten years. One pleasant Monday morning, she rose early and did the family washing before breakfast, which had been prepared by Mrs. Townsend and Adriana, as was their habit on washing days. The family were seated at the breakfast table in their basement dining room, and this maid, whose name was Cordelia, was hanging out the clothes in the vacant lot. This vacant lot seemed a valuable one, being on a corner. It was rather singular that it had not been built upon. The Townsends had wondered at it and agreed that they would have preferred their own house to be there. They had, however, utilized it as far as possible with their innocent, rural disregard of property rights in unoccupied land. We might just as well hang out our washing in that vacant lot, Mrs. Townsend had told Cordelia the first Monday of their stay in the house. Our little yard ain't half big enough for all our clothes, and it is sunnier there, too. So Cordelia had hung out the wash there for four Mondays, and this was the fifth. The breakfast was about half finished. They had reached the buckwheat cakes, when this maid came rushing into the dining room and stood regarding them, speechless, with a countenance indicative of the utmost horror. She was deadly pale. Her hands, sodden with soap suds, hung twitching at her sides in the folds of her calico gown. 
Her very hair, which was light and sparse, seemed to bristle with fear. All the Townsends turned and looked at her. David and George rose with a half-defined idea of burglars. Cordelia Battles, what is the matter? cried Mrs. Townsend. Adriana gasped for breath and turned as white as the maid. What is the matter? repeated Mrs. Townsend, but the maid was unable to speak. Mrs. Townsend, who could be peremptory, sprang up, ran to the frightened woman and shook her violently. Cordelia Battles, you speak, said she, and not stand there staring that way as if you were struck dumb. What is the matter with you? Then Cordelia spoke in a fainting voice. There's somebody else hanging out clothes in the vacant lot, she gasped and clutched at a chair for support. Who? cried Mrs. Townsend, rousing to indignation, for already she had assumed a proprietorship in the vacant lot. Is it the folks in the next house? I'd like to know what right they have. We are next to that vacant lot. I'd, I don't know who it is, gasped Cordelia. Why, we've seen that girl next door go to mass every morning, said Mrs. Townsend. She's got a fiery red head. Seems as if you might know her by this time, Cordelia. It ain't that girl, gasped Cordelia. Then she added in a horror-stricken voice, I couldn't see who it was. They all stared. Why couldn't you see? demanded her mistress. Are you struck blind? No, ma'am. Then why couldn't you see? All I could see was... Cordelia hesitated, with an expression of the utmost horror. Go on, said Mrs. Townsend impatiently. All I could see was the shadow of somebody, very slim, hanging out the clothes and... What? I could see the shadows of the things flapping on their line. You couldn't see the clothes? Only the shadow on the ground. What kind of clothes were they? Queer, replied Cordelia with a shudder. If I didn't know you so well, I should think you had been drinking, said Mrs. Townsend. Now, Cordelia Battles, I am going out in that vacant lot and see myself what you're talking about. I can't go, gasped the woman. With that, Mrs. Townsend and all the others, except Adriana, who remained to tremble with the maid, sallied forth into the vacant lot. They had to go out the area gate into the street to reach it. It was nothing unusual in the way of vacant lots. One large poplar tree, the relic of the old forest which had once flourished there, twinkled in one corner. For the rest, it was overgrown with coarse weeds and a few dusty flowers. The Townsends stood just inside the rude board fence which divided the lot from the street and stared with wonder and horror, for Cordelia had told the truth. They all saw what she had described the shadow of an exceedingly slim woman moving along the ground with upstretched arms, the shadows of strange, nondescript garments flapping from a shadowy line. But when they looked up for the substance of the shadows, nothing was to be seen except the clear, blue October air. My goodness, gasped Mrs. Townsend. Her face assumed a strange gathering of wrath in the midst of her terror. Suddenly she made a determined move forward, although her husband strove to hold her back. You let me be, said she. She moved forward. 
Then she recoiled and gave a loud shriek. The wet sheet flapped in my face, she cried. Take me away! Take me away! Then she fainted. Between them, they got her back to the house. It was awful, she moaned when she came to herself with the family all around her where she lay on the dining room floor. Oh, David, what do you suppose it is? Nothing at all, replied David Townsend stoutly. He was remarkable for courage and staunch belief in actualities. He was now denying to himself that he had seen anything unusual. Oh, there was, moaned his wife. I saw something, said George, in a sullen, boyish bass. The maid sobbed convulsively, and so did Adriana for sympathy. We won't talk any about it, said David. Here, Jane, you drink this hot tea. It will do you good. And Cordelia, you hang up the clothes in her own yard. George, you go and put up the line for her. The line is out there, said George with a jerk of his shoulder. Are you afraid? No, I ain't, replied the boy resentfully and went out with a pale face. After that, Cordelia hung the towns in wash in the yard of their own house, standing always with her back to the vacant lot. As for David Townsend, he spent a good deal of his time in the lot watching the shadows, but he came to no explanation, although he strove to satisfy himself with many. I guess the shadows come from the smoke from our chimneys, or else the poplar tree, he said. Why do the shadows come on Monday mornings and no other, demanded his wife. David was silent. Very soon new mysteries arose. One day, Cordelia rang the dinner bell at their usual dinner hour, the same as in Townsend Center, high noon, and the family assembled. With amazement, Adriana looked at the dishes on the table. Why, that's queer, she said. What's queer? asked her mother. Cordelia stopped short as she was about setting a tumbler of water beside a plate, and the water slopped over. Why, said Adriana, her face paling, I... Thought there was boiled dinner. I... I smelt cabbage cooking. I knew there would something else come up, gasped Cordelia, leaning hard on the back of Adriana's chair. What do you mean? asked Mrs. Townsend sharply, but her own face began to assume the shocked pallor which it was so easy nowadays for all their faces to assume at the merest suggestion of anything out of the common. I smelt cabbage cooking all the morning up in my room. Adriana said faintly, and here's codfish and potatoes for dinner. The Townsends all looked at one another. David rose with an exclamation and rushed out of the room. The others waited tremblingly. When he came back, his face was lowering. What did you... Mrs. Townsend asked hesitantly. There's some smell of cabbage out there, he admitted reluctantly. Then he looked at her with a challenge. It comes from the next house, he said. Blows over our house. Our house is higher. I don't care. You can never account for such things. Cordelia, said Mrs. Townsend, you go over to the next house and you ask if they've got cabbage for dinner. Cordelia switched out of the room, her mouth set hard. She came back promptly. Says they never have cabbage, she announced with gloomy triumph and a conclusive glance at Mr. Townsend. Their girl was real sassy. 
Oh, father, let's move away. Let's sell the house, cried Adriana in a panic-stricken tone. If you think I'm going to sell a house that I got as cheap as this one because we smell cabbage in a vacant lot, you're mistaken, replied David firmly. It isn't the cabbage alone, said Mrs. Townsend. And a few shadows, added David. I'm tired of such nonsense. I thought you had more sense, Jane. One of the boys at school asked me if we lived in the house next to the vacant lot on Well Street and whistled when I said yes, remarked George. Let him whistle, said Mr. Townsend. After a few hours, the family, stimulated by Mr. Townsend's calm, common sense, agreed that it was exceedingly foolish to be disturbed by a mysterious odor of cabbage. They even laughed at themselves. I suppose we have got so nervous over those shadows hanging out clothes that we notice every little thing, conceded Mrs. Townsend. You will find out some day that that is no more to be regarded than the cabbage, said her husband. You can't account for that wet sheet hitting my face, said Mrs. Townsend doubtfully. You imagined it. I felt it. That afternoon, things went on as usual in the household until nearly four o'clock. Adriana went downtown to do some shopping. Mrs. Townsend sat sewing beside the bay window in her room, which was the front one in the third story. George had not got home. Mr. Townsend was writing a letter in the library. Cordelia was busy in the basement. The twilight, which was coming earlier and earlier every night, was beginning to gather, when suddenly there was a loud crash which shook the house from its foundations. Even the dishes on the sideboard rattled, and the glasses rang like bells. The pictures on the walls of Mrs. Townsend's room swung out from the walls, but that was not all. Every looking-glass in the house cracked simultaneously, as nearly as they could judge, from top to bottom, then shivered into fragments over the floors. Mrs. Townsend was too frightened to scream. She sat huddled in her chair, gasping for breath, her eyes rolling from side to side in incredulous terror, turned toward the street. She saw a great black group of people crossing it just in front of the vacant lot. There was something inexpressibly strange and gloomy about this moving group. There was an effect of sweeping, wavings, and foldings of sable draperies and gleams of deadly white faces. Then they passed. She twisted her head to see, and they disappeared in the vacant lot. Mr. Townsend came hurrying into the room and looked at once angry and alarmed. Did you fall? He asked inconsequently, as if his wife, who was small, could have produced such a manifestation by a fall. Oh, David, what is it? whispered Mrs. Townsend. Darned if I know, said David. Don't swear, it's too awful. Oh, see the looking glass, David. I see it. The one over the library mantle is broken, too. Oh, it is a sign of death. Cordelia's feet were heard as she staggered on the stairs. She almost fell into the room. She reeled over to Mr. Townsend and clutched his arm. He cast a sidewise glance, half furious, half commiserating, at her. Well, what is it all about? he asked. I don't know. What is it? Oh, what is it? The looking glass in the kitchen is broken. All over the floor. Oh, oh, what is it? I don't know any more than you do. I didn't do it. 
Looking glasses broken is a sign of death in the house, said Cordelia. If it's me, I hope I'm ready. But I'd rather die than be so scared as I've been lately. Mr. Townsend shook himself loose and eyed the two trembling women with gathering resolution. Now look here, both of you, he said. This is nonsense. You'll die sure enough of fright if you keep on this way. I was a fool myself to be startled. Everything it is, is an earthquake. Oh, David, gasped his wife, not much reassured. It is nothing but an earthquake, persisted Mr. Townsend. It acted just like that. Things always are broken on the walls, and the middle of the room isn't affected. I've read about it. Suddenly, Mrs. Townsend gave a loud shriek and pointed. How do you account for that? She cried, if it's an earthquake. Oh, oh, oh. She was on the verge of hysterics. Her husband held her firmly by the arm as his eyes followed the direction of her rigid pointing finger. Cordelia looked also, her eyes seeming converged to a bright point of fear. On the floor in front of the broken looking glass lay a mass of black stuff in a gruesome long ridge. It's something you dropped there, almost shouted Mr. Townsend. It ain't. Oh! Mr. Townsend dropped his wife's arm and took one stride toward the object. It was a very long crepe veil. He lifted it, and it floated out from his arm as if imbued with electricity. It's yours, he said to his wife. Oh, David, I never had one. You know, oh, you know I shouldn't, unless you died. How came it there? I'm darned if I know, said David, regarding it. He was deadly pale, but still resentful rather than afraid. Don't hold it! Don't! I'd like to know what in thunder all this means, said David. He gave the thing an angry toss and it fell on the floor in exactly the same long heap as before. Cordelia began to weep with racking sobs. Mrs. Townsend reached out and caught her husband's hand, clutching it hard with ice-cold fingers. What's got into this house anyhow? he growled. You'll have to sell it. Oh, David, we can't live here. As for my selling a house I paid only 5000 for when it's worth twenty-five, for any such nonsense as this, I won't. David gave one stride toward the black veil, but it rose from the floor and moved away before him across the room at exactly the same height, as if suspended from a woman's head. He pursued it, clutching vainly all around the room, then he swung himself on his heel with an exclamation, and the thing fell to the floor again in a long heap. Then were heard hurrying feet on the stairs, and Adriana burst into the room. She ran straight to her father and clutched his arm. She tried to speak, but she chattered unintelligibly. Her face was blue. Her father shook her violently. Adriana, do have more sense, he cried. Oh, David, how can you talk so? sobbed her mother. I can't help it, I'm mad, he said with emphasis. What has got into this house and you all anyhow? What is it, Adriana, poor child, asked her mother. Only look what has happened here. It's an earthquake, said her father staunchly. Nothing to be afraid of. How do you account for that? said Mrs. Townsend in an awful voice, pointing to the veil. Adriana did not look. She was too engrossed with her own terrors. 
She began to speak in a breathless voice. I was coming by the vacant lot, she panted. And I, I had my new hat in a paper bag and a parcel of blue ribbon. And I saw a crowd, an awful, a, a whole crowd of people with white faces as if they were dressed all in black. Where are they now? I don't know. <laughs> Adriana sank, gasping feebly into a chair. Get her some water, David, sobbed her mother. David rushed with an impatient exclamation out of the room and returned with a glass of water which he held to his daughter's lips. Here, drink this, he said roughly. Oh, David, how can you speak so? sobbed his wife. I can't help it, I'm mad clean through, said David. Then there was a hard bound upstairs, and George entered. He was very white, but he grinned at them with an appearance of unconcern. Hello, he said in a shaking voice, which he tried to control. What on earth's to pay in that vacant lot now? Well, what is it? demanded his father. Oh, nothing, only... Well, there are lights over it. Exactly as if there was a house there. Just about where the windows would be. It looked as if you could walk right in, but when you look close, there are those old dried-up weeds rattling away on the ground the same as ever. I looked at it and couldn't believe my eyes. A woman saw it, too. She came along just as I did. She gave one look, then screeched and ran. I waited for someone else, but nobody came. Mr. Townsend rushed out of the room. I dare say it'll be gone when he gets there, began George. Then he stared round the room. What's to pay here? he cried. Oh, George, the whole house shook all at once, and all the looking glasses broke, wailed his mother, and Adriana and Cordelia joined. George whistled with pale lips. Then Mr. Townsend entered. Well, asked George, see anything? I don't want to talk, said his father. I've stood just about enough. We've got to sell out and go back to Townsend Center, cried his wife in a wild voice. No, oh, David, say you'll go back. I won't go back for any such nonsense as this and sell a $25,000 house for 5000 said he firmly. But that very night, his resolution was shaken. The whole family watched together in the dining room. They were all afraid to go to bed. That is, all except possibly Mr. Townsend. Mrs. Townsend declared firmly that she for one would leave that awful house and go back to Townsend Center whether he came or not, unless they all stayed together and watched, and Mr. Townsend yielded. They chose the dining room for the reason that it was nearer the street should they wish to make their egress hurriedly, and they took up their station around the dining table on which Cordelia had placed a luncheon. It looks exactly as if we were watching with a corpse she said in a horror-stricken whisper. Hold your tongue if you can't talk sense, said Mr. Townsend. The dining room was very large, finished in oak, with a dark blue paper above the wainscoting. The old sign of the tavern, the blue leopard, hung over the mantel shelf. Mr. Townsend had insisted on hanging it there. He had a curious pride in it. The family sat together until after midnight, and nothing unusual happened. 
Mrs. Townsend began to nod. Mr. Townsend read the paper ostentatiously. Adriana and Cordelia stared with roving eyes about the room, then at each other as if comparing notes on terror. George had a book, which he studied furtively. All at once, Adriana gave a startled exclamation, and Cordelia echoed her. George whistled faintly. Mrs. Townsend awoke with a start, and Mr. Townsend's paper rattled to the floor. Look! gasped Adriana. The sign of the blue leopard over the shelf glowed as if a lantern hung over it. The radiance was thrown from above. It grew brighter and brighter as they watched. The blue leopard seemed to crouch and spring with life. Then the door into the front hall opened, the outer door, which had been carefully locked. It squeaked and they all recognized it. They sat staring. Mr. Townsend was as transfixed as the rest. They heard the outer door shut. Then the door into the room swung open. And slowly that awful black group of people which they had seen in the afternoon entered. The Townsends, with one accord, rose and huddled together in a far corner. They all held to each other and stared. The people, their faces gleaming with a whiteness of death, their black robes waving and folding, crossed the room. They were a trifle above mortal height, or seemed so to the terrified eyes which saw them. They reached the mantel shelf where the signboard hung, then a black-draped long arm was seen to rise and make a motion, as if plying a knocker. Then the whole company passed out of sight, as if through the wall, and the room was as before. Mrs. Townsend was shaking in a nervous chill. Adriana was almost fainting. Cordelia was in hysterics. David Townsend stood glaring in a curious way at the sign of the blue leopard. George stared at him with a look of horror. There was something in his father's face which made him forget everything else. At last he touched his arm timidly. Father, he whispered. David turned and regarded him with a look of rage and fury, then his face cleared. He passed his hand over his forehead. Good Lord, what did come to me? He muttered. You looked like that awful picture of Tom Townsend in the garret at Townsend Center, Father, whimpered the boy, shuddering. Should think I might look like most any old cuss after such darned work as this, growled David, but his face was white. Go and pour out some hot tea for your mother, he ordered the boy sharply. He himself shook Cordelia violently. Stop such actions, he shouted in her ears and shook her again. Ain't you a church member? he demanded. What be you afraid of? You ain't done nothing wrong, have you? Then Cordelia quoted scripture in a burst of sobs and laughter. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, she cried out. If I ain't done wrong, maybe them that's come before me did, and when the evil one and the powers of darkness is abroad, I'm liable. I'm liable. Then she laughed loud and long and shrill. If you don't hush up, said David, but still with that white terror and horror on his own face. I'll bundle you out in that vacant lot whether or no. I mean it. Then Cordelia was quiet, after one wild roll of her eyes at him. The color was returning to Adriana's cheeks. 
Her mother was drinking hot tea in spasmodic gulps. It's after midnight, she gasped. And I don't believe they'll come again tonight. Do you, David? No, I don't, said David conclusively. Oh, David, we mustn't stay another night in this awful house. We won't. Tomorrow we'll pack off bag and baggage to Townsend Center, if it takes all the fire department to move us, said David. Adriana smiled in the midst of her terror. She thought of Abel Lyons. The next day, Mr. Townsend went to the real estate agent who had sold him the house. It's no use, he said. I can't stand it. Sell the house for what you can get. I'll give it away rather than keep it. Then he added a few strong words as to his opinion of parties who sold him such an establishment. But the agent pleaded innocent for the most part. I'll own I suspected something wrong when the owner, who pledged me to secrecy as to his name, told me to sell that place for what I could get and did not limit me. I had never heard anything, but I began to suspect something was wrong. Then I made a few inquiries and found out there was a rumor in the neighborhood that there was something out of the usual in that vacant lot. I had wondered myself why it wasn't built upon. There was a story about its being undertaken once, and the contract made, and the contractor dying. Then another man took it, and one of the workmen was killed on his way to dig the cellar, and the others struck. I didn't pay much attention to it. I never believed much in that sort of thing anyhow, and then, too, I couldn't find out that there had been anything wrong about the house itself, except as the people who had lived there were said to have seen and heard queer things in the vacant lot. So I thought you might be able to get along, especially as you didn't look like a man who was timid. And the house was such a bargain as I had never handled before. But this, you tell me, is beyond belief. Do you know the names of the people who formerly owned the vacant lot? asked Mr. Townsend. I don't know for certain, replied the agent, for the original owners flourished long before your or my day. But I do know that the lot goes by the name of the old Gaston lot. What's the matter? Are you ill? No, it's nothing, replied Mr. Townsend. Get what you can for the house. Perhaps another family might not be as troubled as we've been. I hope you're not going to leave the city said the agent, urbanely. I'm going back to Townsend Center as fast as steam can carry me after we get packed up and out of that cursed house, replied Mr. David Townsend. He did not tell the agent, nor any of his family, what had caused him to start when told the name of the former owners of the lot. He remembered all at once the story of a ghastly murder which had taken place in the Blue Leopard. The victim's name was Gaston, and the murderer had never been discovered. That was Mary E. Wilkins Freeman's The Vacant Lot, as read by Amy Pownessa. Amy Pownessa has been the producer and host of The Bloodlust, a horror movie review podcast since 2014. She has narrated stories for Knife Point Horror, Those Snowy Nights, and The Alexandria Archives. 
she's thrilled to narrate for Tales to Terrify, especially because she credits the podcast with reigniting her love of horror fiction. Amy lives just outside of Detroit with her lovely wife, two vicious 12-year-old attack dogs, and a fluffy orange cat who dominates them all. Thank you, Amy. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we'd love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it isn't free to produce. There's a lot of effort and care that goes into bringing you these terrifying tales each and every week. And a little donation can go a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Reviews are essential to keep us on the charts so that new listeners can find their way to our dark delights. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dig deep into darkness with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.